This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a lot we still don't know about that deadly home explosion linked to oil and gas development in northeast Colorado in April, like just how unusual it was. Governor John Hickenlooper told us this recently. I am still of the opinion that this was a freak occurrence, that there's not any likelihood that there's a similar situation anywhere in the state. I'm not aware of of this kind of explosion ever happening, not just in Colorado, but anywhere in, in the West. But a new study shows that accidents like this aren't as uncommon as you might think. With me is John Adgate. He chairs Environmental and Occupational Health at the Colorado School of Public Health. That's at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, what, what did you find when you looked at accidents, fires and explosions in particular, between uh, 2006 and 2015? Well, our team looked at the available data that we could get from the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. We also got some data from the state of Utah so we could do a comparative analysis. And what we found over the last 10 years, there were 116 fires and explosions reported in uh, Colorado. Now, they're not all of equal severity. Um, but the rate that we saw uh, based on, on a per well basis was uh, less than half of what they see in Utah. So there's uh, clearly some issues about how fires and explosions are, are reported. And obviously, some of them are more serious than others. Because you look at the rate in Utah, which is, I think, almost twice as high, and you say, hmm, uh, are are there really... Uh, that big of differences between the rates of incidents, or is there a reporting difference? We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Uh, but it, can you say how many of these 116 or so are deadly? Uh, we really can't because you you the the data the way the the data reported it's hard to tell essentially, and th- there's a limited reporting period. So what what people are obligated to do is file within 10 days. And so as a consequence, a lot of the accidents and incidents, uh, i.e. fires and explosions, um, uh, uh, the reason for them is not clear. Now, there is – they are supposed to report when there's a sort of somebody from the general public is – requires medical attention or uh, there's damage to equipment. But that leaves a lot to the operator's discretion on how reporting happens. That is to say if – a worker is injured or killed, that wouldn't necessarily have to be reported. It's if a non-worker member of the public is is injured. Correct. I, I mean, uh, accidents and injuries to workers get reported to OSHA. So that's a, that's a different reporting system. But the COGCC, the Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, uh, th- these are their rules. And the data that we got to kind of get this rate in Colorado came from their records. Okay. You were able to glean the causes of some of these explosions in some cases. You find about 20 percent are equipment failure. 14 percent are lightning strikes. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of an act of, of nature there. Operator error in about 9 percent. And as you say, this data comes from the state. As of April, there were approximately 53,000 active oil and gas wells in Colorado. That number also from the COGCC. You say incidents were reported at 0.03 percent of those wells over this time period and that it was much higher in Utah. Would you still then consider these freak occurrences? That's how the governor has described what happened well, in Wealth what, County. Um, well, what happened in Firestone is a tragedy, clearly. And um, 
you know, we could not glean the severity of the events from the records that were available to us. That we we had a process where we downloaded these off the COGCC website and read through them and evaluated them for you know accident to get the accident rate data because there was really nothing out there even on that. Um, so you know. Uh, uh, when you get to severity, it was we didn't even get into that. That's sort of the next analysis, just because mm. we we can't tell. Okay, I will say that before your study um, in two thousand five, a double wide trailer uh, exploded in La Plata County. Mm-hmm. That was traced to methane leaking from an abandoned well. Two years later, in Trinidad. A house that was under construction exploded also because of a methane leak from an abandoned well. That comes from the public media reporting group Inside Energy. And of course, there was another accident just last week. An oil tank battery exploded in Mead. One person died. Three others were injured. Why did you decide to take a look at this? Well, we're part of a larger sort of research network funded by the National Science Foundation. And we are interested in knowing what catastrophic risk rate was, and we couldn't really find anything on it. Um, the states keep... Was, was Firestone the trigger for this? or did No, this no. We've been working on this more than a year. I mean, oh. it's it's happenstance that the paper came out right after Firestone, actually. I mean, uh, Dr. Ben Blair, who led this analysis, started uh, reading through all these reports uh, more than a year ago. And I know that one impetus for this is the fact that there are more and more housing, houses popping up exactly uh, near existing yeah. wells and lines. Yeah, and, and I, that's actually one of our points, I think, when when we think about this. I mean, we have sort of three recommendations that come out of the paper. One is, um, you know, more standardized reporting and more mandatory reporting of what's going on over a little longer time period so you you could tell what what happened. Um, and, and also that the data gets a little more available. I mean, we had to develop a specialized web script to download these off of the, the COGCC website. You're saying it's not exactly consumer-friendly. Yeah, it's not consumer-friendly at all. So, you know, helping make the, the whole – all the data more transparent would be, a, I think, an important uh, next step. And particularly since, you know, you're increasingly seeing these larger multi-well pads, which are – you know, th- these are industrial sites and things can go sideways periodically. This is why you have accidents – uh, not just in Colorado, but uh, there's accidents that have happened around the country where, you know, pieces have uh, things have blown up, and pieces have been blown uh, quite some distance from uh, the well pad. Okay, so you recommend mandatory reporting, more easily accessible information, and uh, what was the final well, recommendation? Sta- standardized reporting. Mm-hmm. I mean, people should report the same things. Utah has a very uh, proscribed process, um, and and. We viewed their data as a, as a little more reliable because there's there's less left to the discretion and of what, the person reporting. Let's talk about Utah because what you find there is that the incidence of explosions and fires is greater. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you don't think that that is necessarily because there are more of them in Utah, but that the reporting system is different. So how, how just briefly, how does Colorado differ from Utah? Well, it's it's at the discretion of the operator oh. and the uh, there's the person who has to do the report. And there's also these rules about your the discretion is around, um, you know, it, was there uh, an injury to a member of the general public that required medical treatment is the exact language in the COGCC Rule 602 and um, – Good old Rule 602. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or significant damage to a well and equipment. Those are, those, those are the requirements. So, I, you know, I think people are reading the rules and saying we're following, uh, you know, what we're being asked to do. 
So I, I understand that. But in terms of being able to inform the public and being able to make, I think, informed decisions about this, we can do better. I suppose one question that operators in Colorado might have is have regulations in Utah added extra burden to the industry? Does it cost more? Uh, these are some of the thoughts that would arise with potentially more regulation or stricter regulations on the Colorado side. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I think it's possible and I think it's within the realm of the doable. Um, I, I know the industry has a, a position on uh, what they feel is burdensome regulation, but um, you know, obviously it's, it's possible to do this in uh, other states. It should be possible to do it here. What would you tell people, especially in areas that are fast growing, where homes are popping up near oil and gas operations? And I guess the the point is you don't always know. Exactly. I, I mean, you know, the if the Colorado rate is the same as in um, Utah, for example, that you know the chance is about one in fifteen hundred of there being. Uh, a reported fire or an explosion. One in 1,500 wells? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a rate. Um, so, you know, what I would tell people is, you know, read your deed carefully. I mean, uh, and and be aware of what's going on around you. Um, what happened in Firestone, you know, had to do with a flow line uh, being cut. And that's, a, a, a you know, uh, I don't know the frequency of that happening. As the governor said, it's a, it, he considered it a freak accident. My, my message would be that accidents happen. And we need to manage the risks as best we can. And there's lots more information you'd like to glean and make available to the public more easily. Uh, so a message I gather to state leaders in that. Thanks for being with us, John. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. John Adgate chairs the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the Colorado School of Public Health. That's at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. And he joined us to talk about a report on oil and gas explosions in Colorado over about the last 10 years. You can find highlights at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Cars that drive themselves entirely are close enough to reality that Colorado will begin regulating them. The governor Thursday signed into law the first bill to regulate autonomous vehicles statewide. It had bipartisan support. Let's listen back to my conversation with one of the co-sponsors, Senator Owen Hill. I asked the El Paso County Republican what he had to learn or even imagine about self-driving cars to write the legislation. There are a whole bunch of questions out there. What do we do with insurance? What happens when it snows or it rains or you have chain laws in the mountains? And we very quickly came to realize our inability to answer these questions meant we had to have a very light touch here early on. We had to make sure that we weren't going to regulate these out of existence before we even had time to answer a lot of these questions. This bill is not a comprehensive list of rules for autonomous vehicles. A lot of that is going to be worked out in the future. It's fascinating. The chain law, it never even occurred to me. You have an autonomous vehicle. Whose job is it to put the chains on on I-70? That's exactly right. And we have move-over laws here that I think everyone's very familiar with. 
tragically, we had a couple of troopers last year uh, were, were hit. Well, how do you deal with move-over laws? In fact, we had a recently, I don't know if you, you heard about Otto, O-T-T-O, was a truck that drove itself, yes. once it got on the freeway, a beer delivery from Fort Collins down to Colorado Springs. Because they could not comply with that move-over law, they worked with Department of Transportation and State Patrol. They did it 3 o'clock in the morning with like nine patrol cars, lights blaring all along, just to make sure if anything came up that people were in control and could make a difference. Are you more excited or worried about a driverless car future? I'm really excited. Uh, There's so many different opportunities, especially on the safety side. When you look at current stats, 93% of all accidents are caused by human error. So even if we could just cut those down a little bit, we're talking about live safe. Um, We're talking about potentially reducing the number of drunk drivers on the road or driving while high, right, as we have to deal with here in Colorado now. So there are so many potential opportunities here. And as many people, Ryan, as I hear say they love to drive, I've never yet had anyone tell me they love to commute. Yeah, it's a very different thing being on the open road than being on I-25 in bumper-to-bumper traffic. So this bill does do one big thing. Uh, In the opening line, it states that this is the state's domain, essentially. Quote, local authorities are prohibited from regulating these systems. Why declare the state the center of power? Just like all, I mean, we're really just doing the same as all other driving laws here in Colorado. When it, This is a technology that people are putting into cars, whether it's anti-lock brakes, whether it's uh, airbags, whether it's adaptive cruise control. Um, so this technology is already here, and we're just acknowledging what exists for all cars already. So that it's state, a matter of statewide concern. And the state is already the, the kind of keeper of that power? Absolutely. Okay, so that's not a new role for the state? It's not a new role, and we just want to clarify that, let's say you buy a car, one of these new Audis with adaptive cruise control. There are times when you can put it in a mode where it will automatically follow the car in front of you, say on the freeway and stop and go traffic. Oh yeah, that's here now, right? Right. We do want to make sure that we don't come up with a situation where you cannot drive from Colorado Springs to Denver because some municipality or county in between has decided we're not comfortable with this yet. Talk a little bit about the potential for, you know, real changes in employment here. Speak to the truck driver who's quivering in his boots. You know, I had a great conversation with a neighbor of mine who, uh, who drives trucks, and he said, oh, and I am so excited about this technology. Because right now, there's all these regulations about how long I can drive, when I can and can't drive. And he said, I don't want to be driving at 2 o'clock in the morning, trying to keep my eyes open, drinking Red Bull, uh, you know, driving on I-70. If something can do that better for me so they can pay me to do what I do best, namely maneuvering in traffic or when I get into town or unloading or interacting. and That's a kind of hybrid picture. You know, one of the issues you raised at the outset was what happens if if a car that is autonomous isn't a crash. Are you any closer to knowing what the answer is? We are, actually. We, We ran an amendment to clarify that liability is not going to change with the passage of this bill. So right now there are processes for, if you remember the, uh, the Priuses where the stuck accelerator, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. There was a process for dealing with the technology separate from the driver. We, we have great processes for that. We're going to be using those processes in these cases. And that is Senator Owen Hill, Republican from El Paso County. He co-sponsored the first bill to regulate self-driving cars in Colorado. The governor signed it into law Thursday. For an artist, it's a big deal to land a spot in the Venice Biennale in Italy. 
Well, Colorado Springs sculptor Senga Nengudi is one of just 17 American artists invited to participate in the 2017 Biennale, which opened in May. Nengudi is in her 70s, and her career has exploded in recent years. Her work, which often uses pantyhose and other everyday objects, has been collected by the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, and Senga joins us from Colorado Springs. Welcome to the program. Thank you. As I said, you work a lot with pantyhose. You stretch them, you fill them with objects, transform them into all manner of webs, lines and shapes that sometimes extend from gallery walls. What drew you to them as a medium? Um, I like using um, items that have been used, uh, found objects, uh, everyday items, um, such as... uh, uh, masking tape and other things like that. I like to kind of give them a second life to allow people to see things in a second light and to allow um, the materials to uh, uh, go beyond themselves. I like to say in into a poetic self, mm. uh, transform and... and uh, uh, I do that because I want everyone to see the transformative quality of everything, particularly human beings. And so with the uh, nylon pantyhose, uh, I initially um, started working with those after the birth of my two children. Uh, I was amazed at how the body uh, expanded uh, when you're pregnant and then came back into shape afterwards pretty much into shape (laughs) afterwards. And uh, it fascinated me, this sense of body. And I've always been interested in in movement and and body. And so I started filling it with a variety of things, but it wasn't satisfying until I started filling them with sand, which had kind of the sensual quality of the body. And of course, pantyhose have the ability to flex and to form. And so Mm -hmm. there are often very organic shapes, body-like shapes in your work. What what was your reaction when you learned that you'd been invited to be a part of the Venice Biennale, which is, um, to draw on a sports metaphor, really like the World Series of Art? It's the big show, you know? And I was shocked. I was absolutely... that was never entered my mind, to be honest. Never entered my mind. Was never on my trajectory. Oh. Uh, so I was so amazed and excited and nervous and uh, in a state of shock for a while. Do you get nominated? How, how do you get? Yes, in? you have to. You have to be. Um, yes, you, you have to be invited. Okay. So mm-hmm. it's a big deal. And I a, <laughs> I want to talk <laughs> yes. about the work you've created for the Biennale. I understand that mm-hmm. uh, the pieces integrate, in, in some cases, air conditioner components. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I uh, was most fortunate. I uh, Well, actually, this year has been a wonderful year. The beginning of the year, uh, I had a Robert Rauschenberg um, uh, residency in Florida, and that allowed me to work on this piece. And while there, um, I visited a, a metal kind of place, you know, where they they have recycled metals. And I came upon these 
air conditioner components. And they're just amazing because they're made out of uh, copper and and very sturdy and very rough and, in a sense, very dangerous. So I really wanted to uh, couple the nylons with this particular material uh, to show, well, I, I hate to, you know, put a meaning to it because I prefer people when they see the piece, then they pull out their own meaning, uh, given their own experiences. But um, I really wanted to play with the fragility of the nylons against this this hard, uh, everlasting material. Also showing, you know, that combined in certain ways, the fragile can be very strong. Hmm. The air conditioner components make me think of climate change, but that may be an uh-huh. overlay that you don't intend. I, I, don't know. I don't know. Well, considering yesterday, <laughs> uh, no, but uh, I, uh, I no, that wasn't in my consciousness. Okay. <laughs> but that's what I'm, I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's what's so exciting about art that you, as an individual, when you have a interaction with a piece of art, then you bring yourself to it, and then you have your own conversation with that piece. No matter what the artist may have intended, you can. Uh, enrich and enliven the piece yourself by simply, you know, bringing your own self to it. My guest is Senga Nengudi, the Colorado Springs artist. She gives everyday objects a second life, a poetic life, she says. Uh, Her work integrates materials like pantyhose and masking tape. And most recently for her work at the Venice Biennale, it's a big uh, deal for an artist to land there. She has worked with air conditioning parts and uh, Senga, how has it been to make your art in Colorado Springs? You know, your your work is in MoMA in New York, Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles, and there you are in the Springs. <laughs> yes, um, it's wonderful. Uh, I'm also in the collection of the Tate and some other places as well, <clears throat> some other major museums, which is extraordinary to me. Um, I was born in Chicago, and it sounds like a blues song, born in Chicago, raised in L.A. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I was raised in Los Angeles and uh, spent time in New York. And when my children were teens, uh, preteens, we decided to move to Colorado Springs, my husband and myself, our whole family, uh, because... We, I kind of hit a block wall there, and I felt as though I needed a change and we wanted to uh, be in a smaller community. So when we moved here, it allowed me to do my work. I like to say without someone looking over my shoulder, I could develop um, ideas freely as opposed to them being... Um, critiqued, so to speak. So it's a really good environment to raise our kids and to kind of have, you know, quiet kind of existence. And so I do my work here in Colorado Springs, and then I go every place else to, you know, to show it, to exhibit it, and so on. It strikes me that as someone who's very interested in shape and form, You've got some giant shapes and forms right next to you in Colorado Springs mm-hmm. in the in the form of, of mountains. I wonder if the topography mm-hmm. there is ever inspiration. Uh, 
Oh, it is very much so. Um, uh, the the mountains are magnificent, especially when it snows. It's it's like a fairy tale kind of place, and they look like huge altars. Uh, so every single day they look different. Sometimes they have kind of a Japanese kind of feel to them with clouds and mist and so on. And then other days they're just totally majestic with blue skies and billowing clouds. So yes, I'm inspired absolutely every single day from the landscape. What materials have you not yet worked with that you either hope to or plan to? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I'll know it when I see it. <laughs> Is there anything you wouldn't work with? Like, have you skipped over items because you, you just can't find a poetic second life in them? Well, I don't believe that's true. I think everything has, a, you know, a poetic life to it, a second life, uh, an ability to transcend. So, and that regard no do you share that view of the world um or does it extend that view of the world to people so you, oh absolutely okay oh yeah, my god yeah you you don't see objects yeah. as throwaway it makes me wonder if no. if you don't see people as throwaway either that's how i relate to it very much so you know um there are voiceless people there are people that aren't considered and um it's important for the 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 general public as well as the person that's feeling that themselves that things can go higher and and fuller and richer in their lives and uh, nothing should just be decided, oh, okay, that's it, boom, you know, it's over, that person has hit a new low or something. No, there's, there's always the ability to transcend. And you've hit a, a new high in your career, having landed a spot at the Venice Biennale. Is it, is it a tough mm-hmm. act to follow now? Can you go higher? Uh, Yes, it is a tough act to follow. Uh, but, you know, as I've been speaking on this poetic self and transcending, there's always higher, just like there's always lower. <laughs> there's there's an African uh, proverb that I really, um, I, I can't say verbatim, but there's this issue that uh, there's no bottom, as, as also there is no top. Mm-hmm. So it can only, you know, continue. Boy, that's both terrifying and inspiring. <laughs> why don't it is? Why don't we leave on that on that dualistic <laughs> note, Senga? Okay, okay. That's Colorado Springs sculptor Senga Nengudi. She's one of seventeen artists from the United States represented at this year's Venice Biennale in Italy, which runs through the end of November. If you happen to be making plans to visit, you can see some of her work closer to home, though at cprnews.org. Nangudi isn't the only Colorado connection to the Biennale. Denver artist Laura Schill and Joel Swanson are also showing works at one of the Biennale's satellite sites. And through July 16th, at the Denver Art Museum and the Clifford Still Next Door, you can see works by Mark Bradford, who is the official U.S. representative at the Biennale. Thank you.
And that's Colorado Matters for today. We are listener-supported. We would not be here without you at CPR News.